We're going to be in the book of Joshua, continuing our series there, and uh, we've been walking through this several weeks, and you know, as we get into chapters 15 through 17, you notice we don't have a scripture reading this morning because I figured, you know, you can just read that on your own, uh, three chapters worth of verses, uh, but what we see though in these chapters in the book of Joshua is that Joshua has begun to divide the land among the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, you know, as uh, you know, God promised the land of Canaan to the Israelites, and so they've moved in, they've conquered several of these cities and these areas, and now Joshua has uh, begun to divide up the, uh, the land. And as you read the chapters, you read about the different cities and the different areas that were given to the tribes of Israel. You'll read about all these different places where, and we don't have any idea, I mean, I say we, I'm just talking about me and you. I mean, other people know where they are. But, you know, you're reading them, you're probably thinking, I, I have nothing. I don't know where, where this is, where this city is. But basically, you know, it's around where modern day uh, Israel is today. But anyway, Joshua is dividing up the land among the tribes. And uh, I was reading through this ch- these, you know, these chapters. I was reading through those and a few verses really stood out to me uh, in this section. One verse is in Joshua fifteen sixty three. So really, I'm going to only look at uh, three verses from the book of Joshua. Uh, But these three verses really stood out to me as I was reading through how they divided the land and kind of what happened next. Joshua 15, 63, here's what it says. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And the other few verses that really stood out to me are found in Joshua 17, verses 12 through 13. They say, Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But catch this last phrase. But they did not utterly drive them out. And what these verses tell us is that the people of Israel... They did not completely drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. And so what this means is that some of the people that God told them to drive out, they allowed to remain within their community. And initially, that wasn't a problem. However, eventually, it caused major problems. If you flip over to the book of Judges, and Judges chapter 2, which is just the very next book, Uh, Joshua Judges. You read in chapter 2 that Joshua dies at the age of 110. And then as you move into Judges 3, we read these verses in 5 and 6. Listen. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now listen to verse 6. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives... And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And then look what happens. And they served their gods. So it didn't take long for the people of Israel to be led astray by the people they allowed to remain in their community. So here's the point. There is great spiritual danger when you try to cohabitate with sin. Israel's cohabitation with people that worshipped other gods eventually led to their spiritual downfall. And in a similar way, our cohabitation with sin can lead to our spiritual downfall as well. 
And the spiritual downfall I'm talking about is twofold. One, it affects our sin affects our relationship with God. And so it keeps us from experiencing all that God has for us or offers to us. And the second downfall of our spiritual walk is that sin affects our relationship with others. You know, when we are stuck in sin, it keeps us from being able to bless others to the glory of God. And so I wonder how many of us this morning are cohabitating with sin. We're just allowing sin to reside and we're not doing anything about it. And here is where Israel went wrong. They thought they could handle it. They thought they could handle keeping the people around that worshipped other gods. Even though they enslaved them, you know, they did forced labor, but they still had that influence. They thought they could handle it. But it led to their downfall. And we fall into the same trap. We, you know, we think we can handle the, the spiritual, I mean the sinful influences among us, and so we just allow them to hang around. And it's one thing to be tempted. Now, we're all tempted, okay, to sin. It's one thing to be tempted to face temptation, but it's another thing to invite temptation, right? It's a whole other thing to invite temptation into your life, which is exactly what Israel did, and that's what we can do as well. We can invite temptation to come have a seat at our table. You know, we can co-sign the lease of the apartment of our lives and say, temptation, why don't you take up this room right here? I can handle it. You know, it's not a problem for me. And I wonder, and then we wonder why we keep falling into those same sins that we struggle with over and over again. Sometimes it's because we've invited temptation into our lives. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning, based on this passage and moving into the New Testament, is how do we drive sin out of our lives? How do you deal with the sin in your life? And so first, in order to drive sin out of our lives, we must identify sin, right? If you're going to drive something out, you need to know what you're going to drive out. You have to identify it. Now, all of us have what we would call indwelling sin or a sinful nature, okay? We all have this tendency to sin, to go our own way, to rebel against God, okay? We all have that present within us. We all have that tendency, But when we allow that indwelling influence to have its way, we commit sin. We all are tempted. We all have that potential to sin. And when we allow it to find its fulfillment in some action or thought, we fall into sin. And just as God clearly identified for the people of Israel, okay, this is what you need to do. In order to stay faithful, you need to drive these people from the land of Canaan. He wants us to drive sin from our lives. And the way we do that is by identifying the sin according to His Word. Now, there are things that you you do that you may feel guilty about. Or you may feel bad about. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's a sin. Because there are some things you may feel just fine about. But it's a sin. So you may say, well, how do I identify the sin then if I can't just do it on my feelings? Well, you got to go to God's word. You have to ask God, what is it in my life that is not pleasing to you? Just like we read in the psalm earlier. Search me, God. Help me to see it. Because the, the, the issue is we can't see it on our own. We need the help of God's word 
to point out the areas of our lives that are not pleasing to Him. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 7. He says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In other words, Paul was saying, I would have been just fine with coveting. Until God said, guess what? You should not covet. That's not good. And then he said, oh, I'm in sin. Because I covet. And so we need to look at God's word to show us areas of our lives that are not pleasing to him. Things that we do that are in in rebellion against God. We need his word to identify sin for us. We can't just base it on our feelings. J.C. Ryle uh, defined sin in this way. He said, a sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. So again, it's, it's whatever's in our lives that just doesn't line up with who God is and what He has for us. And the only way we know that is by looking at His Word. So, first thing you got to do if you're going to drive out sin in your life is you got to identify it. And we do it according to His Word. Second, once the sin is identified, we need to confess it to God. We must be willing to admit what we're doing is wrong in God's sight. And we need to see our sin as not just an inconvenience or something that makes me feel a certain way, but it's actually against God. It's rebellion against God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Confession begins when we realize that our sinful actions, our sinful behaviors, thoughts, are against God. They are in rebellion against God. And what confession does is it opens up our soul to the transforming power of God's Spirit in our lives. You can't change without confession. Because confession opens yourself up and says, you know what? I was wrong. I've wronged you, God. And now you're in a position to heal. Now you're in a position to grow. But you will not heal. You will not grow without confession. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess our sin, we're opening ourselves up to God's influence and power to change us. But that will not happen without confession. So once we identify our sin and then confess it to God, seeking His forgiveness in Christ, cleansing and help, then we are on our way to healing. But there is one more thing you need to do and I need to do if we're going to drive out sinful actions from our lives. And that third step is that, we must, that we must take is to put to death sin. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3.5. Listen to what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 8.13, this is what he says. Put to death the deeds of the body. 
So Paul, Paul is telling us, Christians, he's saying, okay, Christian, you need to put to death sin in your life. The deeds of the body. What is earthly among you. And this is often referred to as the mortification of sin. Okay? The mortician. You're the mortician. And you're going to put it to death. You're going to put to death the sin in your life. Now the question is, okay, Ron, I identify the sin, I confess the sin. How in the world am I supposed to put sin to death in my life? That's really the question. And to kill a sin, and when I, you know, again, you follow me now, we all have a sinful tendency within us, okay? But in Christ, we are not uh, subject to that tendency. We have power over it. And so when that sinful tendency finds its uh, kind of fulfillment, so to speak, in behaviors, you know, we commit sin. We do things against God. And so what we're talking about is how do I kill the result of, you know, allowing my sinful tendency to have its way? How do I kill sin, the sin in my life? So to kill sin that you struggle with, uh, you must employ what is known as the flanking maneuver. You familiar with the flanking maneuver? Okay, so when two armies, you know, establish their lines against one another, one, uh, one military strategy is to flank their line, right? So you have the, the one battle line drawn up by this one, the enemy, and then you have your battle line drawn up with all your forces. What you want to do is you want to try to get around their line and flank them. And if you can flank them, you can break their line and you can weaken their center and then the center forces of your army could come in and take them over. You know, this is a popular military strategy, flanking the line of the enemy. And in order to kill sin, this is what you got to do. You have to flank the enemy. And the specific type of strategy that we need to employ is called the double envelope strategy or maneuver. And so what you want to do is you want to flank sin from both ends. So you want to encircle it from both ends and cut it off so it'll die. Okay? So we're going to use the double envelope flanking maneuver. Okay? Are we on the same page? Double envelope flanking maneuver. So as it relates to defeating sin, the way we flank sin is from the inside to the outside. We flank sin inside and what I mean by inside is I'm talking about inside your heart, your soul. You got to flank it there, and then you got to flank it on the outside if we're going to kill it. So if you're struggling with sin in your life, if you want to kill it, you got to flank it, okay? And the way you flank it from the inside is to discern what desire you are seeking to fulfill by sinning. Okay? There's a reason why we sin, right? There's a reason behind why we do what we do. And so we need to figure out what desire am I trying to fulfill by doing this sin? And this is a very important step because unless you deal with the inside, unless you flank sin from the inside, your struggle with sin is going to be like trying to keep a, a big beach ball underwater. You know, have you ever tried that? You're trying to keep it underwater and it keeps popping out all over the place. Because 
until you deal with the inside, the inside desires of your heart, you're just going to try to, you know, keep this beach ball in the water and it's just going to keep popping up everywhere. And so we've got to flank it from the inside. John Owens once said this, Grace may be enthroned in the mind, but if sin controls the affections, it has seized a fort from which it will continually assault the soul. So you may understand the grace of God in your mind, but if you don't deal with your affections, your desires, why you do what you do, then sin's going to get this foothold, this fort, and it's going to keep assaulting your soul. So we must figure out the desire behind our sin so that we can shift that desire to a, god, a godly target. Okay? You don't eliminate the desire, but you shift it to a godly target. Thomas Chalmers said this, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, it's not enough, it's not enough just to say, stop doing that. Stop doing that. You need to figure out, why am I doing that? And how can I shift that desire to a godly target? we got to flank it from the inside. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a problem lying to people. You're just always lying to people. And after identifying your sin, you're like, okay, I lie a lot to people. Okay, you identified your sin. I lie a lot. Okay, I confess it to God. You know, God, I I, I find myself lying, not telling the truth, and I I ask your forgiveness. And so you confess it to God. But now you have to kill it. You're not done yet. You need to kill it. And so you begin to look at, okay, why do I lie? Why do I lie? And then you find, well, the reason I lie is because I want to tell people what they want to hear so they like me. That's why I lie. And so now you've got your desire. You say, okay, I, I see why I'm, what's motivating me to lie is I'm trying to please people. So now you must take that desire and you need to shift it to a godly target. And you say, okay, what does God say? Well, God says, I need to seek to please Him, not people. And so as I shift my desire from, okay, you know what? I want to I begin to seek to please God, not people. Then as you continue to, to grow in that, you will become more of a truth teller. Because now you're more concerned with pleasing God rather than just pleasing the people around you. And so this is what it looks like to flank your sin from the inside. You need to think about what is motivating me to do what I'm doing. You know, what, what desire am I trying to fill in an illegitimate way? And how can I shift that desire to a godly target? How, how does God want me to fulfill this desire? You see what I'm saying? So that's the internal flank. Now, but there are times as you deal with sin in your life where you, where you, need, where you will also need to flank sin from the outside. You need to deal with the inside, but you're also going to oftentimes have to flank it from the outside. You know, some of us are, uh, some of us are like alcoholics sitting on a bar stool trying to resist a drink. 
And my dad's an alcoholic. I mean, I know what he is a recovering alcoholic. And so I know the power of alcohol on someone's life. But my point is, is that we are like alcoholics sitting on the bar stool trying to resist a drink. And what happens? We end up taking the drink. Well, why do we do that? Well, because we've set ourselves up for failure. We haven't flanked sin on the outside. And we've put ourselves in a vulnerable position. And we're like the Israelites. And we've allowed temptation to cohabitate with us, thinking we can handle it. You know, for some of you, the sin that you struggle with most is because of the temptations you allow in your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. We all face temptations. Okay? And we always will. But like I said at the beginning, there's a difference between being tempted and inviting temptation into your life. We can recognize, as you look at your life, you will be able to recognize what leads you down the path of sin. You know, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This is what he says. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That's, Jesus said that. Now, I believe Jesus is using a dramatic example to make the point that sin is serious and that we need to pay attention to what is escalating temptation in our lives that leads us into sin. So the eye is an instrument, right? The eye is an instrument that can can be used for godly or ungodly purposes. And there are many other instruments as well, right? That can be used for godly or ungodly purposes. But the point is that we have the power, you have the power to recognize what is it in your life that is escalating temptation. That is causing your temptation to be so strong that it's almost impossible For you to resist it. You know, for the alcoholic, you know, she should not allow herself to enter the bar, have a seat at the stool, and then try to say no to the drink. Right? Rather, she should flank sin from the outside by looking for ways that she doesn't even have to go by a bar. Right? So on the way to work, I don't even want to drive by a bar. I'm going to take the long way because I don't even want to get near one. I don't even want to give temptation a foothold in my life. But that's what it takes to flank sin from the outside. It's realizing what draws me down this path and cut it off, flank it. You know, um, I was meeting with a young man a while ago, and he said, you know, Ron, he said, I'm I'm struggling with um, looking at things I should not be looking at on on my television, on my computer. And I said, well, tell me, when, when do you find yourself falling into this sin? And he said, well, usually it's when I'm alone in my room, watching television or uh, on my computer. 
So, what would it look like to flank his sin from the outside? Well, first of all, he's already begun to do it by sharing with me his struggle. In other words, finding another Christian who cares about him that he can share his struggle with. That's that's huge because we need other people uh, to help overcome things in our lives, encourage us, challenge us, hold us accountable. And so, that's one of the ways he began to flank his sin by sharing it with me, sharing it with another Christian. Second thing I told him, though, I said, you know, to flank your sin from the outside, what you really need to do is you can't watch television or get on your computer when you're alone in your room. Now, you may say, Ron, that sounds extreme. And I would say, well, it doesn't really matter what you think, because this young man wanted to kill sin. And this young man wanted to take care of this sin, cut it off. And so he wasn't being legalistic. He was being strategic. And he was saying, you know what? I'm going to cut off whatever it is that's taking me down that path. If that means having to go to the library and get on my laptop, yes. Is it inconvenient? Yes. Is sin serious enough to do it? Absolutely. And so he was willing to do it. And he was willing to flank sin from the outside by bringing in a brother in Christ to help and then make some changes. So that sin would be starved of its power and it would die. Now, it may look different for each of you. I mean, it's not going to look the same for every person, right? Because what you're struggling with may be different from what someone else is struggling with at this time. What may lead you down this path may be different than someone else. But what you need to think about is how do I flank the sin I'm struggling with from the inside. Let's look at that desire and shift it to a godly target. And then also you need to look at the outside. What is it in your life? It could be people. It could be things. It could be, you know, whatever. I mean, there's several things it could be, but you need to think about, okay, when am I falling into this sin? What is causing me to go down this path? And you need to seek ways to flank that sin and cut it off. You know, God, by His grace, has saved us, you know, through His Son, Jesus Christ, from the power of sin. In other words, we can say no to it. From the penalty of sin. You know, if you have Christ, you are going to be with God forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But we still have to deal with the presence of sin. It's present. And it is a battle. It is a daily battle that we should all be engaged in. This is why Paul told Timothy... In 1 Timothy 4, 7, this is what he says. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. You know, Paul knew you don't just drift into holiness. You don't just drift into obeying God. It's a battle. You have to choose it. You have to want it. So... What do we know? Well, we know God has saved us in Christ. We know that. From the penalty and power of sin. And eventually from the presence of sin, right? When Christ returns or we go to be with the Lord. Second, we do know God has given us His Holy Spirit. We know that. The the Scripture tells us that. But notice that God tells us in His Word that we are the ones who put sin to death. You have to do that. I mean, you have to choose 
<clears throat> to put sin to death. <clears throat> it's not just going to automatically happen. You have to put it to death. You have to use what God has given you to strike that death blow. So we must drive out the sin of our lives just like the Israelites were to drive out all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. But the problem is they refused to do so. And in less than a generation later, they found themselves worshiping other gods. And so unless you are willing to identify your sin, confess your sin, and kill your sin, then you will find yourself spiritually compromised. You'll find yourself stagnant in your relationship with God. You'll find yourself ineffective in your ability to bless others around you to the glory of God. And you will find yourself missing out on what God offers you. You This was true of Israel. And this is true of us as well. So think about this. What is the sin that God wants you to drive out of your life starting today? What is it? Is there something that you're struggling with that God wants you to, to bring focus to and kill it starting today? Now here's the thing about a battle. This isn't going to be a cakewalk. Okay? You're not just going to enter the struggle and proclaim victory and never struggle again. That's just not how it works. It's a battle. And so there will be setbacks. But it's the grace of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us courage to get up again and again and keep on going even after we failed. You know, our strength comes from knowing that God's grace is greater than our sin. That's where the strength comes. And so, yes, there are going to be setbacks. But keep at it, and eventually you will kill it. Because the more we understand the gospel, the more we will begin to want to pursue what is good and right and true. Because we, as we understand what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, gratitude will begin to be the driving force in our pursuit of godliness. You know, the, uh, the old Scottish pastor... Horatius Bonar said, It is forgiveness that sets a man working for God. It is forgiveness that sets a man working for God. He does not work in order to be forgiven, but because he has been forgiven. And the consciousness of his sin being pardoned makes him long more for its entire removal than ever he did before. You know, it's because we've been forgiven by God through Christ that motivates us to put sin to death in our lives and to pursue godliness. So with this realization that we've been forgiven in Christ, you let us put sin to death and pursue godliness. So what is the sin that God wants you to put to death? Let's identify it. Let's confess it. Let's flank it from the inside and the outside and let's kill it. Let us pray. Father, we are anticipating what you're going to do in our lives even today. 
as we seek to identify the sin that we struggle with the most. As we confess it to you, asking for forgiveness, cleansing, and help. And then moving forward to kill it. To flank it from the inside and the outside. Lord, thank you for giving us your spirit, your word, your people. You've given us everything we need to do battle with sin. Lord, help us to make use of all the resources you've provided. And let us make that choice to begin to kill the sin that so easily entangles us. So that we may pursue godliness. So that we may enjoy even more the relationship that you've given us in Christ. And so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Lord, forgive us for when we fall. Thank you for your grace that is there to catch us. And your spirit that is there to empower us to get up and try again. Until those sins that we struggle with are dealt their final blow. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.